Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Um, you were, 
you wrote a book called The Axemen Came from Hell and Other Southern True Crime Stories that we really loved. You were kind enough to pass it along, and uh, I've got it all earmarked all over the place, and I've actually written in it and all kinds of things. I studied Axemen when I wrote my Jack the Ripper novel, and uh, I must say, boy, you really came through with a lot more information than I ever saw. This is a fantastic book. It's journalistically beautiful. You're a very good writer. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. (laughs) So that's what we, we, we'd love to talk about the Axeman and some of the other serial killers in history that you've written about in this book. Okay. And and Axeman is my favorite. And that's because of the mysterious Axeman's jazz. People actually want, I want you to tell it. Um, It's a ragtime piece. It's beautiful. And if Alistair and I were any good on the radio, we would have put a snippet up. But we're writers. Let yeah, us. <laughs> so, but it's really good, and you can find it on YouTube. So tell us about the Axeman. Well, the Axeman was a unknown, uncaught serial killer uh, in New Orleans who started his crimes about 1908 or so. And I'm trying to remember details off the top of my head. I don't have a terribly good memory, so if I stumble a lot, please excuse me. Uh, but his his <laughs> chief thing was to break into the groceries of Italian grocers, and he would attack pretty much anybody that he could find. And most serial killers tend to concentrate on one particular gender, one particular race, but anybody that he could get hold of, he would killed with an axe, or at the beginning a cleaver, later turned to an axe. Uh, He stopped for a few years, probably went to jail or left town for a while and came back, and around 1917, I think it was, kept up his reign of terror for a couple more years, and then stopped and uh, has never been found, never identified. He he was active, okay, so he, this was all post-Jack the Ripper, um, people love to put that together. So, the I had noticed before that the earlier killings, the 1907-08 era, aren't usually mentioned. But you made a really good argument for that. that maybe he gone to jail or something. But can you describe you. a little of what he liked to do? Um, well, he. Um, he what he became, his trademarks, really, he would chisel out the panel of a door. And then he would reach through the hole that was left and unlock the door and then sneak in. And as I mentioned before, would attack anybody that he could find. Men, women, children, even a baby on one occasion. He yeah. ended up injuring a great many. Um, the count was about 12 injured, 7 killed. Well, it amazes me that uh, so few people were killed when he was hitting them in the head with an axe. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, one of the stranger things in the story is how many people actually survived this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did, there he, was one... did he? Oh. I don't know anything about him. I'm curious if if these survivors did 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 he dress up or something so that they couldn't recognize him? Was there any reason why he was never? 
Well, enough people uh, actually got a look at them, uh, except they wildly contradictory, uh, wildly contradictory descriptions of his height and his weight. Uh, but then again, he would attack in the middle of the night in dark rooms, so it's really not a surprise that no one got a very, very good look at him. Right. Of course, in those moments of terror, it's really hard to pay close attention to details. I noticed one thing in the report. Some of them described him as short and portly and others tall. Do you think there might have been two? It's very possible. It it certainly has happened before. Some described him as as black. Some described him as white. It's really hard to say what he looked like. The few people who actually did hear him speak all agreed that he had uh, spoke good English with no accent. Huh. So there was a theory at the time that he might have been mafia or black hand uh, exacting yeah. revenge against Italian grocers. But whoever he was, apparently he had no Italian accent. I, one thing that kept coming to mind when I was reading that is, did Italians tend to run grocery stores more than other um, ethnicities? Or was he really going after Italians or was it? I think he did. In, more uh, they did in, in that particular region. I think so. They were many of them were immigrants from Italy, uh, Sicily in particular, and that mm-hmm. was a good way to get your get in on the ground floor in American society, and to uh, to, to establish a grocery and try to make money that way and to enter the middle classes. Okay. So it might not have been that they were Italian as much as they had grocery stores. That's kind of what I think. Uh, he did attack some other people, apparently, who were not Italian. Not very many. Most of his victims were, which leads mm-hmm. some people to think that he might have been Italian himself or of Italian descent, at least, because serial killers tend to yeah. attack around people that they feel comfortable around. Right. As with Jack the Ripper, there's a lot of controversy as to exactly how many people he killed and to... With Jack the Ripper, there are five people that were certain victims, and then there are others that no one can really quite agree upon. And it's the same with the Axeman. Right. There are people who, uh, some people are sure that they're victims, others are not sure because of the few details don't seem to match the other crimes. Right. The the One of the interesting things is the letter in which he asked for jazz to be played. Uh, you pointed out that like the Jack the Ripper, the Dear Boss letter, this was probably not written by the killer, but can you describe what kind of person might have written it? Well, it sounded more like a practical joke than anything else. It was a letter mm-hmm. filled with allusions to Greek mythology, for example. So it was obviously a well-educated person who wrote it. And he ended the letter by saying that on this certain night, I think it was March 18th, 1918, that's off the top of my head, that he wanted everyone to play jazz music and said, I will stalk the streets of the city and anyone playing jazz I won't attack. So, of course, hundreds of people played jazz records or went to nightclubs or played jazz themselves on their own instruments. Whoever wrote there's that really must have enjoyed no, that. <laughs> yeah, there's really no evidence that he wrote it himself. It comes off as a little too clever a little too mm-hmm. sarcastic to actually have been written by him. It really has all the earmarks of a practical joke, but it's become one of the moments in, in uh, Axeman legend. I love it. And the the, the mysterious Axeman's jazz is actually a, 
a really nice piece of ragtime, which is sort of my favorite kind of music ever. Yeah, it was, that, it's very hard to find. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just saying it's, it's very song hard song. to find. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, uh, yeah, Kevin, talk first. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, it's very hard to find it. I tried to find sheet music, and it was nearly impossible. But uh, on YouTube, there is someone who found it and actually plays it, which you mentioned before. So yeah. you can hear it if you want to. But it's very hard to find original sheet music. It's ragtime. If you are familiar with ragtime, you can often play it by ear. And, and this guy plays it really well. That that might be a lot of fun if you're into that. Um, no, Alistair, what were you going to say? Oh, I'm just curious. I was just curious about what, how that even came to be. I don't. I, again, I don't know anything about this this case. For some reason, this has always been under my radar, um, and so I'm completely, you know. And I'm, I started the book. Love the book. Um, the X Men came from hell. Great book. But <laughs> I'm not that far into it, and I still don't know a lot about it. And I'm just this this music you're talking about. I, I don't. Where did this come from? Oh, uh, after. The letter was printed in the local paper. Someone made up a, a, a piece of music called the Mysterious Axeman's Jazz and started selling sheet music. Okay. Oh, back then a lot of people played the piano. That's that was entertainment at home. And so yeah, someone probably a lot of people played it. the terror by writing a song. It did a good job. I really liked it. I like how it turns into the minor key. Anyway. <laughs> it doesn't seem to have lyrics, actually, just music. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if we could make up lyrics if we stuff. wanted to. We could. <laughs> we should. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> out there make up the lyrics for it. That's right. I'm no songwriter. Um I really like that. But this is this is a little bit of Americana we never hear about, like Alistair said. I only found it because I was digging around for unsolved murders that I could, you know, exploit in my book. <laughs> yeah, it's really one of the more mysterious things about the case is how very little known it is. It's really a terrifying yeah. story. I've had people write to me and tell me that the book actually gave them bad dreams. It was so uh, disturbing to them on a subconscious level, and yet somehow he's not very well known. I've been dreaming while I've been reading this book, i got to admit. I sort of enjoy <laughs> nightmares, though. So. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> me too. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's so okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that means it's good. Um, but what else? I, I guess oh, you know, what I'd like to know is... is um, I'm curious as to how you got interested in this in the first place. I mean, this is—I mean, I know why we are—we we write we write horror, and it's always fascinated us. But you, this is something. I mean, you, you do this full-on true crime. You know, what got you first interested in this? Well, I was always interested in the subject as far back as I can remember. I don't really know if there was a catalyst for it. Uh, for the X-Men, I read the book by Robert Talent, written in 1952, called, uh, oh great, trying to remember the title of it. There's a chapter in it called the X, it's called Ready to Hang. And there's a chapter, it's all about New Orleans crimes, and there's a chapter about the X-Men in it. And I read the chapter several years ago, and I thought, wow, the, this is very interesting. I wonder if there's more to be found out about it. So 
my local library or my university's library has a complete set of New Orleans Times Picayune newspapers. And I went to the dates, 1917, 1918, the dates mentioned by Robert Talent. And I just went through the microfilm looking for more details and more stories. And one of these stories from 1918 mentioned, well, this is very similar to some similar crimes that took place around three or four years ago. It was no, no more precise than that. So then I had to go back three or four years and go through those papers on a daily basis. And that was how I found out about the 1908 crimes. Mm. Right, right. You really enjoy so, research, you were mentioning well, before yeah, the show. I do. Do you get bogged down in it? Research, I, I, I have a tendency, Alistair pulls me out of it. I will get so deep into research that I forget about writing. I just want to read well, I do. take notes. I do. I love it. Uh, <laughs> what I do is, is I go through old newspapers on microfilm, and I have a laptop, and I just write down mm-hmm. details of stories that sound interesting, dates and page numbers, and it's like watching a novel unfold, only it's real life. Yeah. And uh, you find more and more details, and eventually you say, you know, this might make a pretty good story. And when the time comes, you just go and copy all the pages, and you have a, a lot of material to work with. Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> um, on I the wonder, X-Men... Do they have, do they have like, a, like, you know, like a Jack the Ripper, they have uh, a series of, of likely suspects. Uh, do they have any suspects for who the X-Men was? Almost none. There was one person mentioned by Robert Talent in his book, and the man that he called Joseph Mumfrey, an Italian black-hander who got shot to death in Los Angeles in the early 1920s. And for many decades, he was considered the Axeman, no doubt about it, case closed. Uh, one, one thing that I did, I managed to get... Joseph, well, by going through the, all the old newspapers, I found out his name wasn't really Joseph Mumfrey. It was Joseph Monfrey. And I got his prison records, and I found out that for many of the X-Men crimes, he was in prison for blowing up a store. So oh, wow. I think that pretty well proves that he wasn't the X-Men. There's a very good recent book, too, by Miriam Davis called The X-Men of New Orleans, and she has the same, she came to the same conclusion that we may never know who the X-Men really was, but it wasn't Joseph Montfrey. Isn't it interesting, the romance that we attach to unsolved murders? Yeah, it really is. X-Men. Yeah, he wouldn't be nearly as interesting without his jazz and his, you know, lack of identity. It's like Jack the Ripper and all that. They're almost, they're anti-heroes, almost. Yeah, it's true. In yeah. a way, you almost hope yeah. the cases don't get solved. Yeah, exactly. Right. You'd love to know, but there goes the mystery. Right. The, the Mumphrey, when he was killed in L.A., Los Angeles, he was killed by the widow of someone that the Axeman allegedly killed. Was isn't that? But yes. there was there was something um, more the complicated. Last crime in the series. And frankly, uh, pretty most of the, of the scholars of the Axeman case don't believe the last victim really was an Axeman victim. His name was Michael Petitini. And his widow moved to Los Angeles, and Joseph Monfrey also went to Los Angeles, and he tried to extort her, and she shot him. Yeah. Oh, that's how that worked. Okay. And somebody somewhere put two and two together, and they figured, oh, the X-Men crime stopped after 
the last victim's widow killed Joseph Montre, therefore he must have been the Axeman. And that's where the whole thing started, apparently, where he was misidentified. Fascinating. And a lot of people went to prison for far too long in, in these cases, I, not just this one, but the the Austin one as well. They, they were yes, throwing they people did. In. Yeah. Yeah, we think it's bad now. <laughs> yeah, really. Were there were, were there any theories on on what his motives were? Was he there to 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 rob or just to kill or? Evidently, he just was in it for the fun of it. He one thing that he did, and it was one of his trademarks. He would rifle through people's clothing, and he would scatter furniture and go through drawers and things, making it look like a burglary. But he hardly ever stole anything at all. And very often he would leave jewelry and money and things like that lying out in the open. So clearly he wasn't a burglar, or he wasn't in it for, for gain. He right. apparently simply was in it because he enjoyed hitting people with an axe. <laughs> in the head, oh. What a guy. What a nasty fellow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what know, a guy. It's really the stuff of <laughs> nightmares. I think the show American Horror Story did a season recently. Yeah. Based on the yeah, Axeman, and that's where most people have heard of him. Yeah, oh. that's where that's this is where it's ringing. That's where it's resonating for me because I'm like, okay, I remember this. I, I can't remember what what season it was, but I remember the whole thing about playing the jazz and the. Yeah, they did. Uh, yeah, is that the same season where they did H. H. Holmes? I don't it, think I don't. I can't remember. remember. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I think they tackle a different killer each. I'm really sure. Yeah. I haven't yeah. seen enough episodes to really okay. know. Yeah. Yeah. Holmes was the the hotel season, and that was the only one I really watched closely. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> yeah. That was my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite. Um, the, the another one. What do I want to ask here? The 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 um, servant girl annihilator. The the very title always makes me smile. And the thing is, the young journalist who dubbed this Austin killer, the servant girl annihilator, what a mouthful, uh, turned into O. Henry. I think he could have come up with something catchier. <laughs> I know. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of the, the it's, it's sort of the journalistic humor of the time. It's very dark. Uh-huh. And one thing I found reading through all these old newspapers is they, these journalists really had a kind of twisted sense of humor, which I greatly oh. enjoy reading. Yeah. So that's sort of a complicated, ironic name to give someone who's walking around killing servant girls. Yeah. <laughs> Very strange. My son was living in Austin, and I went to visit him, and he took me around to show me these huge lights they had erected when the, the annihilator was, you know, at work. That would, they still use them. They still light up these street lights. It was very, very tall. It was, yeah, it it really was. I, I was fascinated by that. And the yeah, Annihilator, they though. It would have been yeah. built around 1885, 1886, something like that. Wow. Exactly. And they're still there, and they still use at least still one there. of them. And they're in use. And they're very bright. Um, <laughs> but the thing with that, that was wow. 1885-86. A lot of people, like even before we start talking about what he's what he did, like to say that he might have been Jack the Ripper before, you know, he went to London. And you made some very good arguments about why that isn't so. And you want to talk about that? 
Oh, sure. Yeah, Jack the Ripper was, of course, the first. There have always been sexually oriented serial killers, but they were pretty rare. Jack the Ripper is noted because he was the first one that achieved worldwide fame. And, of course, the fact that he was never caught makes him even more of a mystery. But Austin had their uh, sexual serial killer three years before Jack the Ripper. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And because it was so rare for someone to do this sort of thing, at the time the British newspapers thought, well, maybe Jack the Ripper is the guy from Austin who came over to England. But ah. I, I think it's not very likely. As I mentioned in the book, for one thing, uh, Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes exclusively while the servant girl annihilator, as his name implies, murdered servant girls. Yeah. And uh, Jack the Ripper, of course, uh, was not a rapist, and the servant girl annihilator was. Also, the Ripper killed very quickly by throttling and then slashing once the victims were unconscious or strangled, whereas uh, the servant girl annihilator was a lot more brutal than Jack the Ripper. So those were three yeah. reasons right off the bat. Boy, that's really saying something. What was this? Oh, well, if he was more brutal, if, if he was more brutal, what kind of stuff did he do? What, what, like, what was the servant girl annihilator's kind of mo? Well, he would uh, hit over the head with axes, clubs. Uh, then he would slash. The most disturbing thing, I think, is he, in most cases, took some kind of metal sharpened spike and would drive it into his victim's ears. Oh. Yeah, pretty bad. And, of course, that's absolutely nothing like Jack the Ripper. Yeah. No. The Ripper killed so, first and mutilated later, I guess. And that, exactly, that, yeah. In its own and way, that makes him less the girl nasty. annihilator was, he had a thing for ears, which Jack the Ripper didn't have. Oh, oh he was, he cut ears in half and all kinds of things, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And then he dragged women out into the, you know, out of their houses. and Yeah, that was another them. strange thing, which was very un-Jack the Ripper-like, because he would initially attack women in their houses, and then he would apparently push them through the window. I don't know why he never used the doors, but he never did, apparently. And he'd follow through the window and then drag them farther away from the house and then finish off what he was doing. And in your book, you said that... Um, you were quoting something, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it was to the effect of there are 1,473 servant girls in oh, yeah, Austin, yeah. and 950 of them have left, and the rest are all sleeping in their mistress's room, something like that. Is it, do you think that was very exaggerated? I think it was probably, probably a joke. Wrong. It was, you know, uh, uh, again, it was that sort of dark humor of the 19th century, century journalists. And uh, the statistics were so very, very precise there about how many servant girls were in town and how many had left that I took it as a joke. And sometimes it's hard to tell when they're kidding. Yeah. We we always expect journalists to be exact, and that was really the era of yellow journalism big time. That's true. That's true. And they would often uh, post hoaxes and jokes, and they would assume their readers would get it. And, of course, a century later, we don't always get the jokes because we weren't there at the right. time. 
Right. right. Wow. Um, hey, you before know what? Uh, before we go on, yeah. uh, let me take a quick minute to uh, remind everybody that uh, you're listening to Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live. We're your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. You can learn more about what we do at our websites, alistaircross.com and tamarathorne.com, or you can visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com. If you tweet, you can find us at at thorncross. Uh, you can also visit us on Facebook on our Haunted Nights Live page. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. And that's all I have for that. I just have to say that. And <laughs> I'm curious about, do you have, Kevin, do you have a, a favorite case or one that just really stands out to mm. you as being specifically intriguing? Well, in this particular book, I think really the Serving Girl Annihilator case and, well, obviously the Axman case. I forgot to mention the Serving yeah. Girl Annihilator case also is unsolved. Yeah, yep, and that yeah. makes it more interesting. Yeah. Yep, of course. Um, how many were killed? I wonder, if these, I wonder if a lot of these would get away with it now. Like, I mean, you know, back then there wasn't DNA testing and there was a lot of things. And I'm, I'm always curious because you hear about, um, you know, when you start really looking into true crime, you start realizing that there are actively, at any given time, many, many serial killers, you know, that that, that haven't been caught and I'm always curious about what, you know, the reasons. I just don't understand how you can go into someone's house and 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 murder someone, and just, and drag them out of their house and then murder them, or or even do what Jack the Ripper did in in the streets and just kill them, you know, behind a building, and never get caught. It's 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 baffling to me. It really is. Uh, I suspect it was much easier to get away with it then. Yeah. Must have been. Their knowledge of these things was extremely small. He mentioned it does, doesn't it? And Austin, Austin is the state capital, right? So that was a pretty bustling town even then. Um, what? Uh, I'm lost in my notes. <laughs> um, <laughs> isn't it always the way? Uh, how many how many people were killed? Women were killed by the servant girl annihilator. Um, let's see. He killed seven women and one man. How did the man come to be killed? He just happened way? to be there at the time. Yeah. Okay. He was, was the something... husband or boyfriend, depending on whose account is correct, of one of the victims, and they were in their servant's cabin. Hmm. Um. There was something in there. I'm sure it was that story um, about a man in drag. That it, well, oh, he, it he is. Took yeah. yeah, tell us about that. That was another. Yeah, that's. It's just one of those little details. It really doesn't have much to do with the crime, but it's just such an entertainingly weird thing. You have to throw it in. Uh, right <laughs> after the servant girl annihilator got started, there was a huge panic in Austin because servant girls were being accosted. Molested, uh, their houses, their doors knocked on, windows broken. Just uh, they couldn't all have been the work of the same person. A lot of them were copycats or practical jokers, that sort of thing. But uh, one woman woke up and found a man in a dress and a razor in her room, uh-huh. 
and he didn't do anything. She managed to get away, and they thought he was a man who had just recently gotten out of an insane asylum. He was slashing at his dress as he ran, which I found very bizarre. They found the dress the next morning with blood on it, so apparently he cut himself while he was trying to cut off the dress. Wow. Strange. The things you learn, the things you must learn as you're going through and researching these things. (laughs) That's the delight of the old newspapers is you find all these peripheral stories, all these little extras to just help add add more interest to it. You had one in here that's not not unsolved at all. And your your chapter title was right up our alley because it's a terrible pun. Psychopathia Sexualis. It's just perfect yeah. title. Maybe the worst this, fun I ever came up with. No, Very that's proud. the best title. The best. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> um, so this happened in 1892, and it was a woman named Alice Mitchell killed her lover, who was also female. And this, tell us about the thing, and then the, tell us about the murder and what it did uh, badly for lesbians. The stereotypes well, in, uh, in Memphis. So I'm mm-hmm. sure it was especially surprising there. And of course, 1892, and most people didn't know about these things or didn't acknowledge them. And she um, she had been dating a girl named Frida Ward. They were all from uh, the upper classes, too. They were all from wealthy families, which makes the story even more interesting. Apparently they broke up, or Frida broke up with Alice, and Alice got mad and slashed her throat in public with her father's razor and was clapped into jail almost immediately because there were a number of witnesses. She couldn't claim she didn't do it. Right. And then afterwards, uh, there was a huge trial and everything, and uh, she... she she did a lot of insane things in jail, a lot of stereotypical, crazy talk, that sort of thing. Frankly, I think she was faking it. I don't think she was insane at all. But I think the jury, which, of course, in 1892 would have been an all-male jury, I don't think they wanted to hang her, so they went along with the charade and said, oh, yes, she's crazy. And she ended up in an asylum where she only lived about five years. What makes you say she was acting, and what are your clues? Um, It just seems a little too theatrical, the things she would say and do, and very inconsistent. It's hard to remember all the details right off the top of my head, but um, they were just coming up with the silliest things as proof of insanity. The fact that she was left-handed, for instance. Oh, okay. And then when she was a boy, she liked playing baseball and she, that kind of thing. It just sounded like they were grasping at straws to come up with anything they could to call her crazy so they wouldn't have to send her to the gallows. All this, all this stuff, the mannishness and playing ball and tomboys and all that, this caused the society to sort of see all lesbians as mannish. And it, it kind of caused the stereotype to really grow, didn't it? I think it did. Wow. Oh. Again, it that wasn't was something that they would talk about very much. It was kind of surprising to me, uh, as I did my daily research through the old Louisville Courier journals, that they were referring to this case years and years afterwards. Oh, wow. There would be it's cases happening. where a woman would kill another woman, and if 
they were lesbians, there would be a reference to Alice Mitchell in the story. Huh. And then she was totally forgotten. So I, very interesting to me the fact that she was so famous for a while and then totally faded from public memory. Yeah, I'd never heard yeah, of her. Another one I never, I never heard of either. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't no. either. It was just I happened to find a story in the old papers, and I'd go through them day by day, and I, with each day, you'd get a new revelation, and I'd say, "Wow, this no, is a very interesting I, story." That's one thing that I have to say that I do, I do really like and appreciate about your work is, you know, you have found so many kind of unheard of or low profile, you know, the things that people have forgotten and and you put focus on those and I think that's kind of nice because you know there's so much there's so much out there on like say Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, uh guys like this, you know what I mean? And it's still it's fascinating, yeah. but it it's interesting to hear about these other ones because even when we're doing our research for serial killers and stuff because of what we write, uh, we, we don't come across a lot of this. We really we really don't. No. This is, I'm completely unfamiliar with, with a lot of this. It's fascinating. Yeah, a lot of one stories that I haven't written about simply because they've already been written about so many times that I figure oh, yeah. people already know all about them. And uh, Sometimes I'll do it if I can find something new, something previously not written about in a story. But generally I try to pick things that are not that well known and not very right. recent. I try not to do recent stories. Yeah, yeah more historical. Alistair, you'll remember this. What about the this, – this one's very well known and, again, American psych what, – what's the name of that series? Is that it? The one that did Hotel. American oh, Horror uh, American Story. American Horror Story. Um, with with Kathy Bates as Madame right. French name, the New Orleans oh, one. Yeah, Delphine. Have Lallery, you researched yeah, that much? Yeah. yeah. Have you done much research on that one? Oh, what was her name? I'm sorry. Delphine Lalaurie. The uh, oh, Lalaurie, right, right. I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually have found references to it in old papers, but I've never written about it. It's so well known that I thought, well, yeah. what could I possibly add to it? Right. Yeah. Right. So, so, what do you, do you look have for one? when you decide when you decide it's time to to do a new book? And I don't know. Maybe that's not even your process. Maybe you you just it just kind of happens. But but when you are beginning a new book, or you let okay, let me go back. When you finish the last <laughs> book, how do you decide what? to write about next is there what's the process for that like sometimes it's just a matter of looking through all my notes and saying well is there anything in here that i combine into a story for example a whole lot of midwestern stories i've not done a whole lot of southern stories a lot of california stories so sometimes uh-huh. it's uh, decided by region right now that's it what do you what yeah. do you hope uh well first of all what what do you hear from when you hear from your readers what's what what do you think you hear the most like what do people say to you well they seem to really enjoy all the research that goes into it uh they can tell there's a lot of labor and back breaking work into these things and uh, as you also mentioned they they like the fact that they're getting stories that they can't find just anywhere exactly yeah, they seem to like the humor. Yeah. These are some pretty dark stories, and if you don't use a little humor, they're going to be too dark. Yeah. So they right. seem to appreciate that. 
sort of a fine line. You want it to be funny, but you don't want to be too funny. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, how many how many years have you been doing this professionally? Well, let's see. My first book came out in 2001. So, pardon my math, that's 17 years. Yeah, okay, so 17 years. Yeah. What would you what would you say um in roughly 17 years of doing this you know you're learning about the darkest sides of the human mind and human behavior what would you say if someone asked you how this has changed you I don't think it's really changed me very much except for insights into history maybe it's really interesting. We we love to think people are so much worse now. And people used to be so good to each other and so nice back when our grandchildren were small or grand grandparents were small. And then you look through the old papers and you find the very same kinds of crimes taking place then that take place now and then you realize nothing really changes that much. Right. So how do they determine in, in your research, um I ask this question a lot because I'm 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 curious about it, and I don't know. Uh, there are so many different psychological disorders that go along with this kind of behavior, and of course we all know about sociopaths and psychopaths. But in my experience, those terms seem to be transposed a lot, blended together a lot. Is there a difference, and what is that difference? I'm not really sure. The sociopath is. Um antisocial against society. I notice people tend to confuse the terms psychotic with psychopathic. They're not necessarily the same thing, but you see these two words used interchangeably. Psychopathic oh, people true. are very dangerous. Psychopaths simply are people who don't face reality well. They're not necessarily harmful. They just have a strange vision of reality. Right, right. Yeah. I'm not sure if that answers the question, but yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 yeah. it's, it's an interesting answer because because there there's there's so many different uh, variations out there of what of what it is, and and I think it's changed over time too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, kind of used to mean one thing, and now kind of means another. But I could be wrong. It could just be that I'm not, you know, getting it. But it's mm-hmm. it's interesting to me because there's there's so many, um, you know, like I I'm also interested in like what Okay, so like the servant girl annihilator had a thing for ears, right? So does that make him a sexual killer, or is that just, you know, what, does, does that mean it was a sexual crime? Well, there were sexual crimes, no doubt about it. Uh, I don't know that the ears had anything to do with it. I think that was just something he liked doing for the sheer sadism of it. Right, right. Wow. I guess we call it a signature because it was something he did almost every time. Even though it wasn't necessary, it was just something he liked doing. (laughs) That's fascinating. It really is. Do you have a a killer that scares you the most? Like, is there one that you learn about that you're just like, that's just too much for me? Well, the thing that I think I personally find scariest is a, a book of mine that has nothing to do with serial killers or the paranormal at all. I wrote a book about the Louisville tornado of 1890, 
Oh. And oh, wow. I'm quite afraid of tornadoes. I was nearly killed by one when I was six years old. No way. Oh. I started a lifelong fascination with them, and I thought, well, here's a really, really notorious, well, not even notorious. It's been largely forgotten. It was a tornado that killed well over 100 people. And it ought to be remembered oh, wow. as one of the great disasters in American history, like the Johnstown flood, but no one remembers it at all. Even in Louisville, a lot of people have never heard of it. I thought, well, this um, might make a good book and might help me, you know, confront my fear of tornadoes, but it didn't. It had exactly the opposite effect, and <laughs> oh. I'm more afraid of them than ever. I would not. I live in a pretty good country, book. and I wouldn't want to. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> tornadoes are a lot scarier to me. I live in the middle of earthquake country, and I'm not nearly as afraid of those as I am of tornadoes. I wouldn't want to be there. There's, yeah. there's something about that kind of power terrifying. <laughs> Do you think that there are, in, in your experience, in your years of research, um, do you think that there are signs that someone is is a serial killer, like that you would notice uh, if you knew what you were looking at, and what are they? Well, I'm not really trained at all. I, I know very much that I personally would notice, but apparently there are signs that someone couldn't be an incipient serial killer, and I, I'm sure that hasn't changed over the years at all. We're just simply better at noticing these things. Yeah. Yeah, the childhood signs are the only ones that really stand out. But once you're an adult, you can hide your love of torturing animals and other children. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever met a serial killer that you know of? Have I ever met one? Yeah, no, you know I don't of. think yeah. so. <laughs> if I ever did, they haven't been caught yet, so maybe an uncaught serial killer. <laughs> In your book, you mention under uh, two shopworm defenses for the price of one, uh, the the Estes killing. You mentioned something called the uh, so-called unwritten law. They were de- that was one of the defenses. What is the unwritten law? Well, this is something you'll see a lot of references to in old newspapers. You never see it now. Uh, the idea was this: if somebody seduced your spouse or seduced your children or anything of the sort, you were perfectly within your rights to beat them to death or kill them or whip them with a horse whip or anything else, and you rarely had any punishment at all. It's the unwritten law. The unwritten law being you have the right to punish the despoiler uh, despoiler of your house. Yeah, <laughs> but a lot of people started taking advantage of that. They would just, you know, I don't like my neighbor. I'm just going to shoot the guy, and I'll say that he, you know, tried to molest my child, and no one's going to right. question it. Too many right. people started getting away with this sort of thing. Right. And it gradually yeah. faded away, but I've seen references to it in newspapers as late as the 1930s, just a lot less. So apparently at one time that was considered a perfectly legitimate defense. Right. Well, it works for me. I, I... <laughs> so that kind of story is about a, 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 a judge or a, a former judge whose daughter came home drunk and she said, oh, such and such a, a man gave me whiskey and he seduced mm-hmm. me and her father went off and just shot the guy. 
without even checking into the story first. And he used the unwritten uh-huh. law as part of his defense. The other part was the insanity uh-huh. plea. Uh-huh. That that tends to work well, I guess. At yeah. least if you want to go <laughs> through that. It's sanitarian. People still use that yeah. one. They don't dare yeah. try the unwritten law, but they actually do use the insanity plea sometimes. Yeah. Wow. Now, you have, we're starting to run low on time, but I want to ask you about the last story in your book, The Rehem- Re- Reprehensible Mr. Powers, um, a cynical murderer of wealthy widows in 1931, West Virginia. And you say he's never quite achieved the notoriety he rich, richly deserved. Can you tell us why? I have no idea why, although I have noticed lately he's becoming more and more well-known. Uh, he was basically a lonely hearts killer, and I can't help but think um, when I when I read about his case, he reminds me so much of internet chat rooms today, <laughs> where uh, uh, he would just place ads in uh, matrimonial newspapers, and lonely uh-huh. women would answer the ads, and they'd come to West Virginia. He would lie. He would tell them he was wealthy, and had a mansion, uh-huh. and was handsome, and all these other things, and would send things, uh-huh. you know, pictures that weren't really of him, the same way people now might put up a po- picture on the Internet claiming it's themselves when it really isn't. Right. Uh-huh. And he do it all the killed time. at least oh. two women and a few children that way. And if he, he got caught pretty quickly. If he hadn't been caught and, quickly, I'm sure he would have done a lot more than that. It was just lack of yeah. opportunity. What was his MO? What was, what was his he, MO? What did he like to do? What did he do? Apparently he beat most of them with hammers and oh, strangled them. Yeah, really, he built his own, he built a barn in which to do these murders, his murder barn. He called his, oh. his farm a murder farm. Wow. Oh, gee. Never heard of him either. And, and this is crazy. The yeah, I, I think he hunter. would have done a lot, lot more if he'd had a chance to. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, the movie Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum is inspired uh-huh. by this case. That's a nasty movie. I saw that when I was a little kid. Yeesh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, good, the author good. of the story on which the movie was based was actually from West Virginia. Ah. It was Harry Powers. I think he called the the killer in the movie Harry Powell, I think. It was very thinly disguised. Wow. It, that was... That was a scary movie. I watched it again not too long ago, but I remember it's it giving me nightmares. It's pretty disturbing. I think it was yeah. around 1955 or so. It's still pretty disturbing, even now. Yeah. I, I was sitting on the floor. Shelley Winters at the bottom yeah. of the river, which is really very, very disturbing. I will not make any bad jokes about that. Um, <laughs> I will not make any bad <laughs> jokes about Shelley Winters. Uh, <laughs> we patterned an unlikable character on her. Um Now we really are almost out of time But I want to ask You're coming back in July to talk about paranormal How does true crime and paranormal Gather for you Or is there any Does it come together Well they don't always They're two separate things But I always think if you can find a way of combining True crime with paranormal That's really good Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's one story I don't have it published yet, but it's about a murder that took place at a hotel in Missouri in the 1880s, I think it was, and then afterwards the house, the hotel was allegedly haunted. So there's a combination of the two things. 
Oh, I should nice. you copies of my book, Horror in the Heartland, which are, it's a sort of a hybrid. It oh. has a lot of true crime stories, but it also has a lot of paranormal stories, too, all of which I found by doing my newspaper research. This sounds utterly delicious. Okay, well, I will. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I'd have to have you some more. Oh, that's, that's fascinating, though. I mean, some of these places where I thoroughly think that a lot of places can hold place memory. I don't really call it haunting, but a lot of people do. Um, and so these places where a lot of bad things took place, so uh, and just like good things, theaters, amusement parks, they hold place memory as well. And maybe this hotel is like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Probably. Maybe. I'm not sure it still exists. It's probably oh, been far okay. down, but for a while there, yeah. it was supposedly. Um, now that I think about it, I've got another book called, oh great, Cruelly Murdered, that's the title. There's a story mm-hmm. in it about a maid who was murdered in Louisville in the 1880s. Uh-huh. And the mansion where she was murdered has been torn down, but allegedly her ghost is now seen on the street nearby. That's kind of a very disturbing way to end a chapter. So to me, that's a very Uh good example of combining true crime with a little paranormal twist to the end. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Do you have have a book of of yours that you feel is, uh, I don't know, what, what, what book are you most proud of and why? Well, one book that I really like, and uh, it just uh, somehow it hasn't really gotten as much press as the others, is called Gothic and Strange, True Tales of the South. It I like it because it's a good combination of paranormal and true crime. It does really creepy things, strange deaths, giant skeletons, oh, thing of that nature. And uh, that was the, the first book in a series I decided to call the American Gothic series. So that one's the South, Horror in the Heartland is the Midwest, Creepy California is California. Uh, later this year will be the New England book, and I'm working on the one about the West right now. The West? That's interesting. The it's West, interesting I'm sorry. Mm. It's very own. <laughs> I'm doing a ghost story California. set in California now, a novel. Uh, not California, Arizona. The old Jerome area, mining I love the yeah. West. <laughs> you yeah. really got my yeah, That sounds like so much fun. Yeah, the oh, California yeah. book was actually supposed to be part of the Western book, but there were so many mm-hmm. California stories that I, I told the Indiana University Press that it really should be a book of its own. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, we've happened, got a lot. So. That's nice. So many killers, that's, they all go to California. <laughs> That's right. Well, coastal towns, coastal, you know, the coast attracts the serial killers, supposedly. I don't know if that's true, but I've always heard that. <laughs> well, that's what um, they say. The Pacific Northwest has produced oh, so many of them. them. Yeah. Oregon and Washington, places like that. Yes. Yeah, I set my first serial killer novel in Seattle because I'd seen uh, Kolchak, the Night Strangler. Oh, right. With the Seattle yeah. Underground. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so I had Good to go. Choice. Yeah. It's so much fun. I love serial killers, but, you know, not that way. Yeah. This is just out of my own personal curiosity, but um, I wonder, 
Um, have you ever considered writing fiction? The reason I ask is because with with all the you know knowledge that you have of all these things, you could probably create like a, <laughs> a really uh, well, yeah uh, legendary type, you know, like your own Hannibal Lecter type. You know? <laughs> I've yeah. thought of it often. I would absolutely love to write fiction. But I just don't think I can. I just don't think I have a mind for it. I just don't seem able to invent characters, invent places, invent dialogue. Everything has to be factually based. But as I like to say, real life is so very strange that often the true things are as bizarre as anything you could possibly invent. It makes sense. We... We, I go by the uh, old Mark Twain saying, get the facts first and distort them as much as you please. You know? Oh, absolutely. And, I would love to write uh, fiction. Maybe I'll try it yeah. one day, but I've just never been able to do yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> and we have trouble sticking to the facts. Yeah. Anybody we can do it. I can be very much. No. Yeah, I no, could we, do, we rely I on, do yeah. If I were to sit down and try to write nonfiction I, I, it would just go. I mean, even if I've tried to write a journal, it goes, <laughs> it turns fictional, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, a good imagination. That's the problem. So I guess I don't no. have a good imagination. I wish I did. Oh, no, you <laughs> just we like can't that. be good but, at everything. Yeah. No, yeah. you're more scholarly. You, you just learn what you're good at, and that's why you stick to it. Yeah. Yeah, Alistair and I wait for characters to come to life, and then they pretty much tell us what to do with the facts we've gathered, which is never truthful. Yeah, <laughs> so, well, yeah it's a different exactly. kind of mindset. And it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, and it's really interesting to meet to to meet uh, people who uh, you know are more the research and the the facts because it fascinates me. Yeah. How how you you can't how how you know. It doesn't just everybody's take different. off and go. <laughs> no. You know, well, if only, yeah, no. If only we could do both. But not everyone can. I think Carol right. Schechter oh. has done some fiction. Uh, yeah, he has. Oh, actually. yeah, I think so. Yeah. He did, yeah. We yeah. Had him on. I have. I can do. Fiction. I can. Yeah, I can write for a newspaper or something like that on the side, but I can't. I couldn't do what you do and write fiction. It has to be very short yeah, no. and out of my hair. Because I'm going to make it. When things have happened, ghostly things, paranormal, anomalous things in my life, I come home, I write them down instantly because I know I'm going to embroider them if I don't. I will oh, always yeah. change everything. Yeah. So you have to <laughs> do the journalistic thing first and get it down on paper so you don't forget when you start making the story better. <laughs> That's a good thing. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, we are so, we're basically out of time. So I'm going to, uh, before we let you go, though, um, I, first of all, I want to thank you for being on. Um, we've really enjoyed it. Um, we're looking forward to having mm-hmm. you back in July when we're going to talk about the more paranormal type stuff. And, of course, you're welcome back anytime. You're fantastic. We love your work. We mm-hmm. love having you on. And um, you. before we let you go, yeah. could you tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and what you do? Oh, sure. Um, I have a website called KevinMcQueenStories.com. If you look for it, though, remember my name is spelled K-E-V-E-N, not K-E-V-I-N. And I have two Facebook pages, one that's uh, Kevin McQueen is the author stuff, Kevin D. McQueen is the weird comedy stuff. And you can find my books from several publishers. Most of them you'll find are from uh, Indiana University, Pelican Publishing, McClanahan Publishing, uh, Jesse Stewart Foundation did one. Nice. Uh-huh. And History right. Press, also called Arcadia Press, did 
six or seven of my books. All right. All right, so check it out. Um, we are uh, both currently reading uh, The Axeman Came From Hell, which is a fantastic account of the, the, the Axeman of New Orleans and other stories, and uh, we're both really, really loving it. So we recommend... We are. That you mm-hmm. yeah. Highly recommend it. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. We are. You're welcome. And again, you know, uh, mm-hmm. looking forward to having you back. It's been fun. Uh we're out of time, so thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next week, we wish you haunted nights. And sweet screams. Dun, dun, dun. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Night. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. <laughs>